Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Who are essential workers? The federal government defines them as public-facing workers who deliver essential services. The Economic Policy Institute says there are roughly 55 million of them in the U.S. today. They're the grocery store workers, the bus drivers, the delivery people, the maintenance workers, and the home health aides. Today, where we live, we continue our series focused on the future of work. Coming up, there's no question while many Americans worked from home in the pandemic, essential workers risked their health by continuing to do their jobs away from home. Will companies bolster these workers' benefits like permanent hazard pay or better health insurance coverage after the pandemic? We'll also talk about trauma essential workers have experienced during this public health crisis. And we want to hear from you. Are you considered an essential worker? What has life been like for you over the last three months? And how do you want your boss or manager to respond to your needs and the needs of your coworkers? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, we understand essential workers are probably at work right now, but if someone in your family is an essential worker and you want to chime in about what you and they have experienced uh, during this pandemic, you can also join us again, 888-720-9677, and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to bring into our conversation now by phone Ace Ricker, who's a front-end supervisor at Stop and Shop in West Hartford. Ace, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell me how long you've worked at Stop and Shop, and uh, before the pandemic, how would you describe uh, your work environment? I've worked for Stop and Shop throughout Connecticut for the last 11 years, and my experience prior to the pandemic has definitely been very different in many ways in just how we work with different customers as well as with each other in understanding the that the longer the pandemic goes, the more empathy we have to um, add into the work environment. Mm. Uh, we all remember when the state shut down in mid-March. What do you remember about preparing for the pandemic and also supervising uh, your employees? Preparing was definitely something not having this occur before wasn't something we could entirely grasp until we were actually fully in it with the customers. And the best thing we could do, I remember two days in a row um, on hands and knees in our stores. I was in the West Hartford store laying down arrows um, for specific directions and lanes. And just remembering that all the stuff we were doing, even though it was very scary that all this had to occur to bring safety. It was something that we wanted to make sure there we did and were proactive when we first started. Hmm. Was there ever a time where you were, we were fearful of going into work, Ace? Yeah, I, I think that fear hasn't gone away. Um, even since the beginning, 
of this pandemic. I remember lying down the day before going in for my first day after the announcement of COVID-19 and the pandemic. Um, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep because I knew at that point, every day I went into work, I was possibly risking my life and my partner's life when I came back home. And that fear is still there. I'm, I'm in some ways, I've kind of numbed it out and go forward and do my job. But that fear is still always there in the back of my mind. Hmm. Uh, today, we're focusing on essential workers. Uh, you said you've worked for Stop and Shop for 11 years now uh, throughout uh, the state of Connecticut. Did you see yourself as an essential worker? I feel definitely I'm an essential worker as well as all of my colleagues at the stores for we are providing the essential needs of individuals to sustain their food and some individuals in our larger stores for our pharmacies and so forth. A lot of times the grocery stores, especially as unfortunately this is becoming normalized, um, in some ways, we have kind of fallen on the back burner as essential workers. Hmm. What do you mean that people just uh, take for granted that you've had to come in uh, each day throughout this pandemic and do your job? The longer that the pandemic continues, the more people we see um, less appreciative, hmm. less motivated um, and saying, thank you for being here and more like you're you're disrupting my flow. I don't want to wear a mask anymore, or this isn't a safety thing that I should be concerned with. And our voices as essential workers and to try to keep the peace and safety of the customers as well as our coworkers, the longer that this pandemic continues, the more normalized it is. And I guess the word lackadaisical people are about what their actions are saying. Are you worried as the state continues to reopen, even though requiring masks and following, again, those lines on the floor to keep people moving through aisles, that you will have customers who won't want to follow the rules, Ace? Um, even since the beginning, we've had very vocal customers not want to follow the rules. And unfortunately, the longer... Um, this goes on every single day, the more and more I see customers neglecting to follow them. Mm. We're talking with, again, uh, Ace Ricker, who is a front-end supervisor at Stop and Shop in West Hartford as we talk about essential workers, especially during this pandemic. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Ace, do you feel like you're well compensated for the work that you're doing, especially because, again, while uh, many uh, people in Connecticut were able to work from home, you had to go in, you and the people uh, that you've worked with for a long time. You mentioned still feeling fearful at times, a lot of stress on the job. Uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, on what you'd like to see uh, Stop and Shop and other companies that employ essential workers, how you want them to be con compensated. I'm disheartened by what we 
are getting as hazard pay. Stop and Shop um, has given us 10% of our hourly or salary wage. And it's really sad to say that that's what we're getting. Um, I don't go into work right now for my hazard pay, going to work because I want to be there for people who need goods. And that's what keeps me going to work every day because 10% of my pay is a couple dollars. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel a couple dollars is worth my life, especially if I am possibly going to affect my partner or the rest of my family. And for my, for Stop and Shop as well as other companies, I've, I've, spoke to many different friends who have worked as essential workers in other retail-based stores and are doing more. Um, but also, right now, if we have individuals who are at high risk. They are mm-hmm. on voluntary furloughed and not receiving any money and any income. And I, I hope that not only Stop and Shop, but other companies and organizations will see, like, please don't just take us as just a number in your accounts and that the executives really say that these are your frontline warriors and these are your frontline people who are trying to do it for the good of the customers or they just can't stay home. They are forced to go and pay their bills and 10% is not good enough. We're going to be talking more about hazard pay coming up here on Where We Live. But again, you can join our conversation, especially if you are an essential worker, if a member of your family has been doing their jobs, going into work each and every day during this pandemic. The number 888-720-9677. We heard from Sherry on Facebook. Uh, She wrote, I'm a home health aide. I work with elderly and handicapped people in their homes. In addition to doing their shopping and taking them to medical and dental appointments, None of that has stopped for me during this time. I've been super exposed and I'm lucky that neither myself or my clients have presently fallen ill. I never hear home health aides mentioned as essential workers, and I'm starting to feel a little bitter. We also heard from Recycle Connecticut on Twitter who wanted to call out the Connecticut essential workers who've continued to pick up trash and recycling, processing recyclables and making new products from those raw commodities in Connecticut during this pandemic. Again, you can join us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to bring into our conversation now, Dr. Fika Chima, who's an infectious disease specialist at Hartford HealthCare. Dr. Chima, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Uh, so often during this pandemic, healthcare professionals, there's been a lot of attention on, of course, the work that you're doing to save people's lives. I wanted to talk more about uh, how this has impacted you personally. How have you seen your work as an infectious disease specialist change because of this public health crisis? COVID-19 so far has been and will be the most defining public health event of this generation. We saw in the initial stages that the virus was at our doorstep and that we were grossly unprepared as a country in terms of the lack of PPE, inadequate testing, and lack of real leadership and guidelines on how to address the safety of our citizens and our community. 
for us as frontline workers, every day has presented its own unique challenge physically, emotionally, and mentally. Uh, I've suffered from overwhelming anxiety some days and sleepless nights uh, as we feared bringing the virus home to our children and to our families. We separated from them uh, as we tried to keep them safe, and that led to more isolation. As a physician myself, and speaking on behalf of everybody else as clinicians, we uh, it was a humbling experience as we learned that there was so much we did not know about this virus, and there was not a whole lot we could offer our patients in terms of treatment options. In addition, as the visitor policy changed and the hospitals closed down to visitors, we found ourselves in a new position uh, providing uh, the support system to our patients. We found that the patients were lonely, afraid, and isolated, and we knew we had to step into our role as not only as their their advocate, but also as their family members. We Mm -hmm. told them that we were there with them by their side. They were not alone. They were loved. We held their hand through every procedure. And we we helped communicate uh, with their families through FaceTime and through Skype. Mm. Uh, Dr. Chima, I'm wondering, uh, as you've described all that for us, personally, how did that impact you and your family? Um, You know, there were many days I felt overwhelmed. Um, You know, i believe in having having really open conversations with my children. Uh, I communicated with them that if uh, I did get sick, uh, I would have to stay away from them, and that we would have to just stay strong through that moment and stay together as a family. The times that uh, I felt overwhelmed and, and weak, uh, I, you know, gave myself some grace and exercised some self-compassion and leaned into the love and support of my family and, and my close friends uh, and just, you know, kept moving forward one day at a time. Mm. What has been the impact on your children? I know you shared with our producer that your daughter, one of your children uh, in sixth grade, wrote an essay on how this whole pandemic has impacted her and her family. I just wanted to read a portion of it. Uh, she wrote, my eyes don't even, she's writing about you. My eyes don't even recognize her, a new person, a new mom. Away she goes to fight for lives she's never been a part of until now. The badge on her coat unlocks the door to a battle zone. She has no choice but to fight all while people don't follow the rules and continue to go on with their lives as if this is an ordinary day she still continues to fight not one second where she can let her watch down eyes up back straight one foot then the other she can't unsee what she saw while battling this invisible opponent it sticks with her day after day night after night it brings a seriousness to her face not the smile I used to recognize. Hours at work, only to come home to continue. No time to enjoy with her, the one I don't know what I would do without. Stacks of reports and papers cover her face that I know looks tired and stressed. The smile and joy she gives, hidden like the sun on a cloudy day. When you read that essay from your daughter, what was your first reaction, Dr. Chima? I was really moved. Uh, I guess, you know, it, it is true that Children see and absorb everything that is around them. Uh, I'm proud of both my children for recognizing the need for my days to be a little different at that time. Uh, My 10-year-old and 12-year-old, both of them are mature enough to see that there was something serious going on in our world. And I felt good that they saw their mother as somebody who cared and could make an impact. 
Uh, and my wish for my own children and for the children of the world is that they live authentically and believe they can be agents of change because that's what the world needs. You can join our conversation about essential workers, 888-720-9677. Simone is calling from Newtown. Simone, you're on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us uh, your your comment or question, Simone. So I work in Newtown as a physical therapist assistant, and we work alongside um, not only uh, the administration, the higher-ups, but obviously our nursing staff throughout the building, and our recreation staff, and we've been here every single day. Uh, When the pandemic started around the middle of March, that was actually my birthday. So Mm -hmm. I ended my birthday weekend by being furloughed home for two weeks because that was the policy at the time because I was exposed to somebody else at that time. And then, you know, the day after I had called in, the policy was different. And the week after, the policy was different again. So I know throughout Facebook and Instagram and everything I'm hearing on the radio, I hear a lot of nurses and doctors and frontline workers. And I know that for all of us and our rehab team here, we don't really hear a lot about rehab. Um, Obviously, the nurses are going into the rooms every day and administering medication and checking vitals. But we're there for the person that's, you know, all the way in the back room that can't go out of the room anymore. And we still need to work with them in a, you know, a a five by five space and get them moving or else, you know, this virus isn't just going to be COVID. It's going to be pneumonia. It's going to be contractures. So we haven't really had a break either. And if we stop, um, the policy in the beginning was to put them on hold because they were pending. And then it was like, no, we have to go into the room and, and get them moving or else, you know, when this pandemic ends a month or two from now, they're going to have much worse problems than they do right now, just being sick. Mm. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing, Simone. I have to ask, uh, because of uh, this, these last three months being especially stressful, your work needed now more than ever. Is there any point where you've decided, you know, enough is enough that the burnout is too great? I did have a day that was pretty bad, but I knew even after going home, and, and crying and talking to other people of mine. It, it was stress because of everything going on, but it was never stress because I didn't like my job anymore. I love what I do. I love coming here every day. I love my patients. Um, I think the burnout is going to happen regardless, but I know, at least for myself and our rehab team, it's, it's not for the pay. It's not for recognition. We really love what we do, and that's why we come in every day because even if you know nurses and doctors and supermarket workers and everything and we're like oh we're we are here too um i think we all are going to have our burnout regardless and if we don't have our burnout i think we're not caring at that point Mm -hmm. because the burnout comes from really giving yourself 110 percent every day um and we're a pretty close-knit team here so when one person is stressed or falling down we always kind of pick up like we'll, we'll take a patient off your schedule we'll, I'll come in a little earlier and, and help you with this paperwork tomorrow so at least in my building and even amongst the nursing staff and the recreation team we are really supportive for each other and the burnout's going to happen regardless mm-hmm. yeah Well, Simone, we appreciate you calling in uh, to remind us there are many essential workers uh, that 
people are relying on during this pandemic. And we appreciate uh, the work that you and your colleagues are doing. I wanted uh, to go back to our guests uh, on the phone. Let me start with you, uh, Ace Richter, again, a front-end supervisor at Stop and Shop. Is there any point uh, during uh, these last three months where you've decided, you know what, enough's enough. This job may not be for me moving forward. Or are you still committed to the work that you've been doing? I had to take a little, uh, I guess, a little me time a couple weeks ago because I found that my, my not only my location, but Stop and Shop in general, um, unfortunately, I didn't feel was being as proactive as they could be. And I needed to take a step back because by that point, we I, I really saw a change. People were getting very frustrated that the state wasn't opening and we started to become the punching bag. And being the punching bag isn't fun in general in retail, but being the punching bag during a pandemic and horrible things like because someone can't get more than a limited amount of a product because we have restrictions mm-hmm. to tell our associates to get to get COVID and die and horrible things like that. Sometimes the voices that say we appreciate you sometimes aren't enough at that point. And I've thought about it a lot lately because I go into work for the people and to and to be there for the people and not that ten percent but now the people are not all people, but some people are now throwing it back in my face. Well, Ace, we hope that you uh, are able to stay safe in the work that you're doing at a stop and shop in West Hartford. Uh, before we had to break, I wanted to go back to Dr. Fika Chima, infectious disease specialist at Hartford Healthcare. I wanted to ask you something similar, Dr. Chima, uh, because mm-hmm. of what you've experienced. Uh, is this something that you think that you can continue to do? Uh, obviously, uh, you took an oath uh, when you became a doctor to uh, take care of people. But at some point, when you think about work-life balance and the impact on your family. Uh, is there any moment where you think that maybe this job is, is too much at times? So even before the COVID pandemic began, the healthcare workers were battling an epidemic of burnout. Uh, multiple publications have reported the burnout rates to be as high as 35 to 45%, especially amongst physicians. Uh, you know, with this pandemic, uh, all the frontline workers, not just the healthcare providers, were taking on an added risk in order to do their job and show up every day. Um, there are many of us who felt frust- frustrated and disappointed with how things in healthcare have evolved. Uh, many of us have said that when this is over, uh, they will be done for good. Uh, Personally, I feel, for me, medicine is where my passion meets purpose. I know I've been put on this earth to do my best work and create something incredible. Regardless, you know, I am human. There are times uh, I feel when my soul is overwhelmed by the crushing grief that I sometimes have Mm -hmm. to carry every day. Um, But the world needs 
all of us to come together uh, because in healthcare, there's so many things that we need to fix and do better. Uh, the inequities that we're seeing uh, and the structural racism that has infiltrated every aspect of life uh, also impacts public health. Uh, and we've seen in this pandemic that our African-American and Hispanic brothers and sisters are negatively impacted, have limited access to health, and have a shorter lifespan. So we need to stand together with everybody in our community. We need to vow as a scientific community and as healthcare providers to respect the fundamental rights of every individual, to embrace diversity, and to promise and make a promise that we will advance science that makes health equity for all. Dr. Faika Chima, again, is an infectious disease specialist at Hartford HealthCare. Dr. Chima, we thank you for calling in today here on Where We Live. Thank you so much. Also with us, Ace Ricker, front-end supervisor at the Stop and Shop in West Hartford. Ace, we thank you as well. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you an essential worker? We want to hear from you about how the last three months have affected you. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we're going to talk more about the anxiety and stress essential workers are under. And then coming up later, we'll be talking about hazard pay. Should it be permanent? How should companies employ compensate their essential workers even after this pandemic is over. That's all coming up on Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Essential workers provide much-needed services to the general public, but at what cost to their physical and mental health? Are you or someone in your family an essential worker? Are you feeling burnt out over the last three months? Who did you turn to for help? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Karen Alter-Reed. She's a clinical psychologist specialist in trauma treatment for the Fairfield County Trauma Response Team. Karen, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Lucy. Uh, We were able to hear from several essential workers in our state. Uh, When you hear them talking and describing their experiences, what's your reaction? Uh, My reaction is that I'm hearing descriptions both of acute uh, trauma and stress in terms of the too much, too fast, too soon, uh, which results in startle responses, irritability, anxiety, sleeplessness as well as uh, the longer term impact of uh, accumulated trauma trauma and stress, which is that there's a disconnection because of such high stress to uh, this disconnection from our social engagement system that leads to more isolation, feelings of powerlessness. Um, So that we're Uh, dealing a lot with uh, different types of traumatic and stress responses, all very understandable, uh, normal reactions to uh, abnormal situations. 
Mm. Uh, through your practice and your colleagues, who have you been hearing from over the last few months, especially when we talk about burnout among essential workers and not just healthcare workers, but other uh, fields? Uh, we heard again from a physical therapist who's a healthcare specialist, but also when you think about people are doing their jobs each and every day that we may overlook uh, in our everyday. Right. Right. So um, we're a nonprofit organization, and our mission has been to serve um, first responders and their families, frontline workers, healthcare professionals with pro bono sessions. Uh, those who have been seeking our treatment thus far um, have been EMTs, firefighters, uh, nurses, respiratory therapists, uh, residents. So um, uh, folks who are working in hospitals and other traditional first responder situations. All of our patients, we're all, um, you know, clinical therapists, so we're also working at the same time as we're doing this work with our everyday patients, and many of them um, are essential workers, and so um, we're getting to see what they're confronting as well, mm -hmm. and especially now at the intersection of both the pandemic and you know, racial strife and the mm -hmm. revealing uh, and uncovering of systemic racism, which is impacting all. Mm. Tell me more about the, the kinds of, of stressors that these workers are under, even before the pandemic, and how that has changed, Karen. Yeah, well, you know, what, what we see uh, as us normal humans, <laughs> Uh, set apart from first responders is that uh, uh, first responders, their whole headset, and this includes, you know, physicians, nurses, healthcare workers, their headset is to rescue um, and to save lives. And um, pre-pandemic, uh, you know, we worked with uh, firefighters, for example, in the Christmas Day fire here in Stanford, Connecticut. And mm -hmm. what's uh, the most distressing and devastating for first responders is often when you get to a scene and all you, you know you can recover. You can't rescue lives. The people are dead at the scene already, and I think that is what's facing a lot of the healthcare professionals now. Um, is that they're also very similar in that their professional duty that they take very seriously is to save lives, and with the amounts of deaths that they've seen. <clears throat> um, uh, you know, it could be very, very overwhelming and go against the zeitgeist of, you know, who you are, who you're meant to be. And it affects one's identity uh, very much so. You know, before the pandemic, you asked, you know, burnout uh, with insurance companies and uh, a lot of things getting in the way of medical professionals being able to do their jobs. And sometimes you see that um, at first responder organizations as well. Have feelings of betrayal trauma and not being uh, supported to the extent that they need uh, to do their jobs properly. Mm. When you say not being supported uh, into this, you know, to what they need, I'm curious what more they would like to see from their employer. Would it be just acknowledging how they're feeling, uh, being more direct with uh, sharing resources like your uh, practice uh, to help them? And how does this impact their families as well, Karen? Okay, so in terms of uh, the first question, and um, 
Uh, can you repeat it again, actually? Because there was oh, some I'm just curious. Uh, when we, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. When we talk about the support yeah. that they need, the support, what would they yes. like to yes. see from their employers? Yes. Okay. Okay. So usually um, people, it's our human nature to look to leadership to give not only emotional support. Um, you're doing a great job. We understand these are very unusual circumstances and we're here for you. What do you need? We'll give it to you. What happens in situations, crises, disasters, situations where there's very high stress, the leaders themselves often feel very helpless and aren't given what they need. You know, that is, you know, pretty obvious about how that happened with protection, you know, PPE, mm. et cetera, in this case. And so when leaders don't deal with their own helplessness, um, they, it pours down and it leaks down to the next level. So I think that people need the support of leadership to acknowledge and also maybe to do their own work, um, you know, emotionally, spiritually, uh, to uh, be able to come to terms with the stressors that they're facing. They, leadership are facing their own unique stressors, but they, like other first responders, you know, feel they need to stay in a very stoic position. Uh, and this does, uh, often create even more stress and trauma symptoms. Mm. So that is what I mean by not receiving the support. If leadership mm. steps up usually to get treatment, then it um, really helps a lot of people uh, to get the help that they need. You can join our conversation if you are an essential worker or if someone in your family is an essential worker. Uh, we want to know about the support that uh, they are needing in their lives uh, to deal with this very stressful time. The number again, 888-720-9677. Uh, Ted's calling from East Longmeadow, Mass. Uh, Ted, you're on the show. Ted, can you hear me? Oh, I don't think uh, Ted can hear me. Uh, we'll try um, again in just a little bit. Uh, but Karen, I had asked about what all of how this impacts families of these uh, these professionals uh, that you are seeing again, uh, because uh, they are also living, uh, worried about uh, their loved one uh, coming home and maybe getting sick. Absolutely. So uh, it's creating a lot of strain and. Um, you know, on the flip side, also a lot of um, unity in families. But in terms of the strains on families, uh, when healthcare workers and essential workers are uh, scared to come home to their own families and possibly bring infection into their homes and cause illness, this causes a tremendous amount of stress. Um, you know, what's the worst thing for a parent is to uh, think that you can get your child sick. And so uh, not only is the parent struggling with that, but the children pick up, that's natural. You know, kids pick up everything. And, uh, you know, we could see things uh, in the eyes, which is really, uh, anyway, that's a side thing about how much eyes right now with PPEs and how much one could work with the way they gaze in terms of reassurance mm. um, across so many situations now. Um, you know, I think that, uh, parents and families need to come together. They need to gather not only their own resiliencies and maybe discuss uh, what they as a family draw on to stay resilient and strong, but perhaps even it's a time to talk about uh, the generations before them and what they've learned and brought to their current lives. Sometimes people don't dig in and look at the larger arc of life and how those who came before us got through 
pandemics, um, how they fought injustices, etc. So, um, of course, there's a strain with the children being home and they're, you know, having so much stress from missing out on so many of the important things in their lives right now. So the most important thing is acknowledgement, discussion. And if somebody has, if you're concerned about any kinds of uh, symptoms of trauma, to seek help immediately. We can uh, catch post-traumatic stress before it rears its head. The earlier that you get treatment, the more we can prevent uh, onset in the long term of post-traumatic stress. And that's something that people may not realize because prevention of any kind of illness or disease is often elusive. But we actually know in this case with the treatment called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, when we can do very quick um, treatment, it relieves these symptoms. And what it does in treating the symptoms is it helps people to restore their resiliency so that they can bring their strengths into any situation they're facing. Uh, as a psychologist, Karen, uh, again, uh, this pandemic is something that uh, none of us have experienced before. Do you anticipate there'll be more cases of post-traumatic stress from essential workers, what they've experienced? You know, the biggest uh, buffer to developing symptoms, and this is across any situation, is social support. That The literature has been clear on that for so long. And that's why I think we hear a lot about whether people are being appreciated or um, like ACE was speaking about, like many of our first responders, EMTs recently saying to me, you know, we got a lot of recognition right after and a lot of uh, appreciation right after 9-11 and we were soon forgotten. So I think that people just need to keep in mind that our need for human connection and appreciation goes a very far away. In terms of the long-term uh, picture, Yes, we are all in the mental health profession expecting um, long-term uh, PTSD symptoms uh, at PTSD, but we call it post-traumatic stress injury, not a disorder because it's a brain injury, um, just like any other uh, injuries to the body or to the brain. And it's because of the way traumatic memories lodge in the brain. So what we'll see is um, untreated, uh, a lot of, um, well, things that, you know, uh, in the media they've been talking about, and I would underscore, uh, more cases of domestic violence, child abuse, as stressors are um, unaddressed, and uh, there's so much isolation and not being able to reach out for help. And uh, we'll see uh, massive grief, and I think the powerlessness and anger for lack of protection if it sits and stews, um, it it could uh, be be a massive a massive problem mm. for our bodies and our our minds. Yep. The Economic Policy Institute finds that people of color make up the majority of essential workers in industries such as food and agriculture and commercial and residential facilities and services. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that point, uh, Karen, again, uh, connecting uh, people in all of our communities with the right resources. Uh, many of these jobs are working minimum wage. They may not have great health uh, care coverage and being able to be uh, recommended or encouraged to be able to find resources to help them not only deal with physical health, but mental health. 
Yes, we, um, you know, there's, uh, because as you're mentioning, the scarcity or the difficulty finding resources and also because of systemic race, uh, racism and um, blocks to, you know, feeling stigmatized or not understood um, or ser services simply, you know, lack of people of color in the mental health fields. Um, it is going to be a challenge, but we can do it because people need to get into their communities. Um, mental health clinicians joining with other um, with other professionals and being able to uh, find ways to reach uh, workers across classes, but place special attention. Right now, it's um, it's our calling um, to really listen, and I think that's the first key: is to listen to uh, people and see what are their needs? Who do they wanna be seeing? What's, what is a good match for them with mental health? We just can't go in, uh, you know, like on our uh, white horses and say, we're here to help. These are long-term issues that we're talking about in the mental health system and in our society in general. And the first step in everything is to listen. So I think that we have to find ways to get out there and talk to people and hear about what their needs are. We may make many assumptions about what the needs are and be wrong. You've been hearing Karen Alter-Reed. She's a clinical psychologist specialist in trauma treatment for the Fairfield County Trauma Response Team. Hi, Karen, thank you for joining Where We Live. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How should companies consider compensating essential workers beyond this pandemic? Will hazard pay likely continue? We're going to talk to an economist after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, we continue the Future of Work series on where we live. The pandemic has caused major disruptions for workers' careers, but data is showing that women have been hit particularly hard. On the next Where We Live, we consider gender equality in the workplace. We talk about which partner takes on more childcare responsibilities while working from home to the gender of workers who hold the majority of frontline essential jobs. We want to hear from you. That conversation on Thursday. Now, many essential workers have received temporary hazard pay for being exposed to a greater risk of illness or injury on the job during this pandemic. But how should companies continue to compensate them when the pandemic is over? For some more perspective on this, joining us on Zoom now is Patrick Gorley. He's Assistant Professor of Economics and Business Analytics at the University of New Haven. Patrick, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. We've talked uh, just we've referenced hazard pay several times uh, during uh, this hour. We heard from Ace at the top of the show who works for Stop and Shop um, saying that hazard pay is really just a, a tiny part of the paycheck uh, that cashiers and others have been receiving at, at grocery stores. Can you talk more about this idea of hazard pay and what has been provided, especially to essential workers in the pandemic? Yeah, so hazard pay traditionally is just a compensation to workers for having a riskier job. You think about hazard pay kind of in certain industries more than others. The military for a long time is a combat pay, which is a form of hazard pay. You look at 
international aid organizations, they pay hazard pay. Even if you're a U.S. embassy worker, you get hazard pay if you're in countries or in cities that are deemed more dangerous than others. This is really the first time that we've seen it go large scale hazard pay that is into industries that you usually don't think about. I never would have guessed that you know, a stop and shop employee would get hazard pay, but we are seeing that for the first time to try and compensate them for that additional risk. Uh, we, when we think about uh, hazard pay, we're hearing even large companies like Target and Starbucks providing their front li- frontline workers uh, hazard pay. But is that starting to wind down? What does the future hold in terms of employers continuing to give this benefit? I don't think it's going to be permanent just because especially now unemployment is much higher than before. And so especially in retail, the profit margins companies have aren't that large. And I don't know if they'd be able to afford to do it long term. And even if they could afford it, I don't know if they will just because if workers decide to quit, there's probably going to be an ample labor pool for these businesses to draw on. Mm, that's interesting. I know that the Congress uh, had talked about hazard pay or passed the how the U.S. House had passed hazard pay in the Heroes Act last month. I don't I don't think that's a done deal yet, uh, uh, Patrick. Uh, what do we know about how Congress may be able to help sustain this? That'd be an an, inter- an interesting change. So far, hazard pay doesn't have a lot of regulation. It's something that companies do on their own. It isn't really defined in the law that much. It looks like the HEROES Act is probably dead in the water and won't get through Mm -hmm. the Senate. But if they were to mandate some sort of hazard pay, it would definitely change the landscape and be a new area that law really hasn't moved into. Are we seeing uh, any kind of movement on uh, better compensation, maybe not providing hazard pay, but working on permanent wage increases? Again, uh, the economy is really... uh, sank uh, these last uh, three months starting to recover a little bit. But I'm just wondering in terms of trends that uh, employers may look to in the future, again, to help uh, keep uh, their workforce, or do we consider essential workers uh, as expendable? There'll be other people to do this work if they if they choose to quit. So far, we don't really know for sure what wages have done, just because it would take a while to get all the data and mm-hmm. clean and look at it carefully. In 2018, 2019, wages were gaining um, and growing at a really quick rate. But that, again, in large part was because the unemployment rate was so low. When you have an unemployment rate of 4% or 3.5%, then firms are going to have to start increasing their wages to find workers. Now, if the unemployment rate is in double digits, then employers aren't in that kind of pinch and they probably won't have to increase wages. You can join us if you're an essential worker or someone in your family is. The number 888-720-9677. John from New Haven. John, are you there? Yes, I am. And tell us uh, what you wanted to share. Well, as a minority business owner, um, I am a co-owner of a bike shop in New Haven, Connecticut called uh, the Devil's Gear Bike Shop right downtown. And we've been open since the start of the pandemic, helping our first responders, the folks in the healthcare industry, firefighters, police, and we have certain protocols in our shop. Uh, uh, My partner and our staff understand that we are here to help, and Mm -hmm. we just bite the bullet 
at the end of the day, we go for a real long bike ride just to relieve the stress. Um, I do worry about my staff. Um, it's difficult when you have to think about, wow, at the end of the day, some of the people that you're helping are on the front line in the hospital in, in COVID-19 wards. And guess what? They show up at your shop because they got a flat tire or their bike is not working. And they are using their bike to get back and forth to work. And next thing you know, you have to, you're talking with these uh, heroes and mm-hmm. you're going home. So even at home, we have a certain protocol like, all right, immediately clothes come off, go into the washer, and you hop in the shower. You know, mm-hmm. you, it's, it's, it's that thing after. Like, for us, after we go for a bike ride, it's like, that's the protocol. That's the protocol. Well, John, John, thank you for calling into where we live. We appreciate you uh, sharing your experience. Uh, Patrick, we just have under a minute. I just wanted to ask uh, Patrick Gorley, you know, as uh, as the economy uh, hopefully uh, rebounds and people start getting back to work, you know, what trends are you going to be looking for in terms of how uh, companies treat their employees? Yeah, I think as the economy comes back, what I'm most interested to see is just the speed. This is the first recession I can really think of where the ultimate cause wasn't economic. You know, it had to do with a, a virus. And so I know people are worried right now that, especially after the Great Recession, that it took a real long time to kind of the American economy to recover. But I'm still hopeful that we will get back on track much quicker than in previous recessions just because there wasn't this economic cause at the beginning. Mm. Well, Patrick Gorley is Assistant Professor of Economics and Business Analytics at the University of New Haven. Patrick, thanks for joining Where We Live. Thank you. Uh, today's show, produced by Tess Terrible, Carmen Baskoff was on the phones. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.